This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, and I am Nora Ronkainen. Today we are talking about a very important topic, which is mental health in academia, especially focusing on PhD students and early career academics. I have the pleasure to introduce Richard Tahtinen, who is a clinically trained psychologist currently completing his PhD research at Liverpool John Moores University. He is also a lecturer at the University of Akureyri. And Richard's research interest involves athlete mental health issues. And he will also talk about that research and how that uh, possibly relates to mental health as we as we are talking about that in the academia. So welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's It's really great talking to you today. Just as a background to what we will be talking about today, in the recent years, we have a lot of concerning research evidence that academics are struggling, and especially younger researchers, PhD students, and, and early career researchers. We have research that is so, uh, showing that the majority of university staff are finding their jobs stressful or very stressful. We can see more burnout in university staff than in general working populations. And also that's comparable to so-called high-risk groups, such as healthcare workers. And especially it's worrying when we are looking at the younger scholars who are about to start their academic careers. So, for example, a recent European study from 2017 was showing that 32% of doctoral candidates were at risk of having or developing a common uh, psychiatric disorder. And some statistics from the U.S., have been showing that 40 per, uh, 47% of PhD candidates uh, were considered depressed. So these are really, really staggering numbers. And as a consequence, there is now increasing attention to these issues. How can we understand that? What can we do to help these young people to better cope with their with the demands of the job. And it seems especially clear that there's something about pursuing a PhD, pursuing a career in academia that, that seems to be related to these alarming numbers. So I think I'll first ask you, Richard, to talk a little bit about your, your current research on mental health. So you have been focused on sports populations, you've been focused on athletes, but maybe you can give us a little overview of the work you've done and maybe build some preliminary links to talking about mental health in the academia as well. Okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, <clears throat> for the past two and a half years, almost three years now, I've been uh, looking more closely into uh, mental health issues in athletes and especially uh, depressive symptoms. Uh, and, and, and anxiety and um, yeah so basically my research is trying to establish first of all uh, looking at the research field as a whole within sports psychology um, what has been done and uh, what the focus has been on uh, thus far um, we know that uh, there's been a increased research interest in this in this um, 
topic within the past 10 years or so. So compared to um, the field of general psychology or clinical psychology, uh, we are really, really behind in, in, in knowledge gathering and evidence gathering from this population. So that is pretty much my first steps that have been to look into the, that uh, research area. And what, what, what I'm finding is that a lot of the research has been pretty much based on looking at overall prevalence rates and, and establishing a kind of knowledge whether athletes are somehow different than the normal population. Is there a difference between levels or prevalence of depressive symptoms? And um, uh, the findings are quite mixed. Uh, it's still a lot of uh, issues maybe when it comes to methodology. Uh, studies are doing different kinds of things and looking at different kind of populations. So it's kind of hard to uh, say overall a definite answer on these questions. But at least it's established that athletes are a specific population that experiences both the generic risk factors and as well um, the more sport-specific risk factors. And, and so that is a very important area to look more into. Further on in my research, I'm looking into then trying to dig a little bit deeper and look into what are the more individual level uh, kind of characteristics that might make some athletes more vulnerable for experiencing mental health issues. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's where I'm at at the moment. And maybe when you mentioned that there are some sport-specific issues as well that might be contributing, maybe you can just mention some of those and, and give us a few reflections about whether that might be something that is relevant for academics as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously there is a range of different kind of uh, sport-specific risk factors. Perhaps the most important thing to mention is that these risk factors may vary uh, quite largely depending on the type of sport you're engaging in. And well, some studies are showing that individual sport athletes are more vulnerable or or, or perhaps the, the, the performance environment is more um, uh, involves more risk factors. Obviously, then again, it's really difficult to say that all individual sport athletes are in heightened risk, which is probably not the truth. But uh, there are definitely some uh, interesting findings uh, which we can maybe link into the academic world, which I can see many, in many, many ways as a individual performance uh, domain where uh, researchers are... Uh, often criticized uh, personally uh, for their work, obviously, um, and and as well, you are an individual performing in a context where performance is often evaluated, uh, if not on a daily basis, then at least quite often. So I think that's an important link that we can, that I could bring in um, uh, from the world of sport. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And let's go back to that a little bit later in our talk. Just looking at the recent review article that uh, by Mackie and Bates that was published in 2019 in the journal Higher Education Research and Development. So they were looking at the different kind of cultural issues or issues in the PhD work that seem to be related to mental health issues. And, and difficulties in, in the PhD experience. And basically the issues that they were identifying in this review were problems in the supervisory relationship, lack of transparency in the university processes, 
such as having unclear expectations or unwritten rules that you don't know. Role conflict, which was typically work-family or family-work conflict, financial insecurity and, and uncertain career prospects. So those were the main things that they were raising. So maybe we can talk about each one of them a little bit. So let's start with this kind of supervisory relationship. And in your work with athletes, you've mentioned the coach-athlete relationship. So maybe you can reflect a little bit on that, whether whether there is some similarity in that. Yeah, it's it's actually more something that I've exper- experienced on on with working with athletes. It's not really part of my research, but anyhow, it's um, it's definitely a very important part. Uh, if you look at, at athletes that, um, especially athletes that are in individual sports and, and they have a really, the coach-athlete relationship is very, uh, how could you put it, intense or at least it's very frequent where the exchange of communication and ideas and, 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 and thoughts uh, take place most, most often even daily. Obviously, this relationship is extremely important for the athlete. And if we relate that into the academic world, I would see that the supervisor and and the student or the student-mentor relationship is very important since many times, especially for young PhD students, maybe moving to a new city or or a new country, uh, the supervisor might be the first person the individual meets and even before they start their study. So I think uh, if that relationship is dysfunctional, then obviously that will will be a cause of stress for the individual. Obviously, then the, the supervisor itself obviously is experiencing their own kind of issues with being in the cultural context of, of academia. So it, it is a very complex dynamic that takes place. So first of all, we have to look at that from a kind of bigger perspective and, and what are the, uh, the factors that influence. But directly for the student, then obviously this person becomes a very important influence on their everyday work and activity. So that is definitely something that is an important factor to look into. Mm -hmm. I think some of the issues that we are also talking about there is, is the power relation in terms of in the academia, when you are applying for jobs after that or postdoc positions or applying for anything, you always need to have recommendations from your supervisor and and all that. Mm -hmm. And so so there is always the power relation and just I've seen in several cases that a lot of PhD students are also doing a lot of extra work in their supervisors' projects, yeah. which is increasing the workload. And I think a lot of PhD students are not necessarily comfortable saying no because mm-hmm. they are also worried about the relationship that it needs to stay good in order to that you have good recommendations and and that helps you towards the future as well. Yeah, and I I think I see this as it's a kind of multifaceted thing because obviously there's different ways of doing this. There's uh, the way of empowering the student by saying that, hey, uh, I would like you to take part in this and this study and help me out, which might not be the main job or the PhD work or whatever the, the student is focusing on. I mean, if that is done in a good way, then that actually might uh, strengthen the individual by giving more uh, self-confidence that, hey, you know, they are giving me this uh, opportunity and, and, and like this. But when when it becomes almost exploitation of the student, then obviously we're on the wrong track. Exactly. And there would be needed like really good planning in terms of how does that increase the main workload? Because the PhD, you have to get done anyway. 
And if you are working on other projects during the day, that means that you are doing your PhD during the night. That kind of things always are difficult. And, and I just kind of know that PhD students often have difficulties saying no to their supervisors. So yeah. kind of also for the supervisors to be managing the workload. I, I think one of the really important things that we have to keep in mind is that now that academia is so international and transnational, so for example, you have grown up in, in the Nordic countries, Finland, you lived in Iceland for a long time, going to UK to a different culture, expectations are different. I'm Finnish, but I've done my PhD in Denmark, where the culture wasn't so different. But I think the point is that so there is always that adjustment to the working culture and, and it might not meet your expectations. And what is good support or good supervisory relationship is also cultural. For example, coming from an Asian country to work in a Nordic country, you might feel, and I've heard from my colleagues, that you would feel that there isn't much support because you are used to having a lot of structure and and mm. much more kind of directive approach from your supervisor that this is what you need to do whereas in the nordic countries there's a lot of autonomy that you design your research and that's what you're going to do mm -hmm. so it can be very unsupportive for somebody who is used to a different type of structure yeah so the next thing that was mentioned in in that review was the lack of transparency in in the what they call university processes so they were for example talking about there are unwritten rules that you don't know it's unclear what is expected that's already what you mentioned about that you might not really even know what your job actually involves mm -hmm. and um, close decision making so you might not actually know what is happening by whom and what mm -hmm. so so i think that that kind of issues about uncertainty about what what is it that you are actually so supposed to be doing mm -hmm. as a phd student yeah and i think i think there it i would hate to put it on the individual but obviously if we look into you know when i look back what i could have done better uh, enrolling to my phd student studies is to uh, prepare a little bit better to do a little more groundwork of what it actually means to do a PhD. Uh, what are mm. the what are the work processes? What are what is the culture that I'm going to? You know, uh, talk to people that have been on that program before, and also just getting to know the supervisor before, even before you meet the person. So, what what mm -hmm. is the work that they've been doing? Uh, where do they come from? Uh, what are their interests? So, I think that is also. I would not say that it is anyone's fault if those things don't align, but it would be helpful for the individual entering PhD to do a good groundwork before they uh, start. I think that, that that's a very, at least what I've learned uh, doing this process. Yeah, absolutely. And when I've been doing this research on cultural transitions of athletes, so when they're, for example, uh, moving to a different country to play for a new team, and there we can see that kind of the athletes who've, who've done the work before they have gone to that place. So they have contacted people. They have tried to find out about the customs of, of that place and try to also psychologically prepare and, and do a lot of information gathering. Those are usually the ones who are having uh, less difficulties when, when they actually go to that new environment. 
Yeah. But I have to say at my own experience as well, going to Denmark, I really didn't have clear expectations of what it means to be a PhD student. So, mm-hmm. but I'm, I didn't have those expectations, but I also think that the universities could have a much more like different places have different induction, but in some places it could be just that here is your desk. Now you can start to work and that's almost it. Yeah. So at least kind of on the individual level, there are those things that everybody could do by being more pro- uh, proactive, mm-hmm. but also in terms of providing this more institutional support yeah. is, is something that is really quite quite important in that that process. Yeah, I agree on that. And, and there's also, obviously, if we look at this, you know, like we already kind of mentioned that this is a very, it's a very complex issue that we're discussing because there's so many levels involved. First of all, obviously, we all bring our own own uh, baggage with us. So we already come in with some kind of underlying uh, ways of seeing the world and understanding things happening around us. And obviously, we have our <clears throat> uh, personal life experiences that, you know, my even either might uh, work as a, uh, a kind of strengthening or protective factor going into a new environment, or it also could be that our previous experiences make us more vulnerable to uh, not being able to deal with uh, the imminent stress that will come from uh, entering a whether it's PhD studies or new new job or new environment. So um, that is the individual level. But then obviously that will interact with the other stuff that we're talking about, the, the supervisors and, and the, the cultural context and the, the specific ways of doing things in specific uh, universities and so on. So it is a very complex mm. issue that we are discussing. I absolutely agree on that. Third thing that was mentioned in this review was was the issues of role conflict. So you would have a work-family conflict or one is interfering with the other. And I think that's something that is really, now that we are talking about the corona pandemic and a lot of people have been working from home for several months and now the boundaries between your family time and your work time have become very blurred. So I would think that this... Uh, this kind of finding balance is probably more difficult now than ever, at least for some. Yeah, I, are you you are asking me or? <laughs> yeah, that's that was a reflection. <laughs> yeah. How is your work family balance going, Richard? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely <laughs> been uh, challenging. I mean, uh, we have uh, me and my wife. We have uh, twins, boy and a girl, and they're uh, seven years old. And um, yeah, it was definitely challenging to do the work which was already very heavily relying on my own, you know, it's, nobody told me to get up in the morning and do the job. You know, it's all on my responsibility. So when uh, the kind of rhythm of uh, doing PhD studies uh, is broken by the fact that you are at home with your children and, and your family, which is not too bad in a way, but it, it does in, in, in interfere with the, the balance between work and personal life. So we were stuck uh, for, I think, 12 weeks at home. I know some people mm-hmm. have been much longer, but after 12 weeks of uh, quarantine or, or isolation in the UK, um, children couldn't go to school or couldn't, you know, obviously go anywhere. 
we then decided to move to Iceland because uh, I was going. We were going to move in in the, the, this August. Uh, this happened in May, so we decided to uh, move back to Iceland. And obviously, just moving back home with a full container of things, and and then we had to be two weeks in quarantine here in Iceland. Uh, yeah, I can definitely say that it was difficult. The, what was the most difficult there was maybe the fact that being able to kind of accept the situation as it is and do the best of the of each day as they were. So instead of having your mind uh, on the work that I should be doing this and this and this, uh, but I couldn't. So, you know, it was really difficult to focus on, you know, what was going on at the moment, just be with the family and, and, and take it as it comes. Uh, I think that was the, so basically it happened that you were not doing your job and you weren't really with your family. So mm-hmm. you weren't really anywhere. So that kind of state is very difficult to uh, deal with. Uh, but, uh, you know, I used my <laughs> psychology skills and, and, and really, you know, I had to sit down and see, and see, hey, you can't do anything about this. You can do something about this. So let's do that. So that definitely helped me. But then then again, you know, it's um, it is difficult. And even in the times of, you know, when COVID or coronavirus wasn't on yet, this kind of I think this is a big problem many times balancing the work and the, the what is not work and what is work. And, and I think this structure changes quite drastically from coming from, for example, master studies where you have mm-hmm. syllabus and you have you have to turn this in by this time and you have to study this and there's a test tomorrow and, you know, these things that really make you, gives you a schedule, basically. And this is what I've seen a little bit in athletes as well, uh, that they come from a very highly constructed system where they are told on a daily basis what pretty much they're, what they're supposed to eat and when they wake up and when the training is, uh, when there's a meeting and they just kind of follow uh, all those instructions. Uh, mm-hmm. But then after that athletic career ends, there's no one there to tell you what to do. You know, you suddenly wake up in the morning and it's like, maybe I should apply for a job or, you know, what 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 do I do? You know, there's nobody telling me what to do. So I think this mm-hmm. we can see also in the academic world when you're coming from highly structured master's studies and you then move into PhD where it sounds really nice. I mean, you have all the freedom and, you know, nobody's there to breathe in your neck and, you know, there's no tests, you know. But yeah. you also realize that you've lost the structure, so you have to build that up. So that, that can be very difficult. Yeah. So there is this balance between uh, being privileged to have the freedom, but it easily slips to kind of nobody cares whether I do anything or not. And nobody's checking in, like, how are you doing? And yeah, and it's, yeah. so that's the balance. And I have to say that it's about... 10 years since I finished my master's degree and then going for a PhD and postdoc and so forth. I do think that the pace of the academic world has also increased a lot during that time. So as a master's student, it would have never crossed my mind that I will send something to my supervisor and ask them to get it back by Sunday evening. (laughs) But so now it feels that the students are sending you stuff like all around the clock mm-hmm. and so also also others in terms of the weekend doesn't seem to be weekend for for a lot of people anymore so yeah kind of 
emails come and go anytime. And when you are working with people in different time zones, like mm. things come and go all the time. So it's really up to, up to each one of us to kind of put the boundaries that I'm not, you know, reading my emails in the yeah. 11 in the evening or something like that. Yeah. So now you're kind of looking into the supervisor uh, aspect of them. Yeah. Just kind of thinking now that compared to when I was a mm-hmm. student and compared to the students today. So there seems to be kind of increased expectations for all of us to be available all the time. Yeah. And so that probably also makes this work family conflict grow. So if you feel that there's an expectation that you have to get something done during the weekend, for example, mm-hmm. that is likely to. I think it's very interesting this this point you're making about um, increased availability and, and, and that we should be online 24-7. I think that, uh, so, so I talked to some of my psychology colleagues um, about well, well, some, the, the, there's a community that we can post questions and stuff like that. And there was a question, uh, one asking if, if, if the other psychologist in that community had experienced some change, uh, with their, um, clients after COVID, uh, and especially those who have been dealing with burnout and whether they are doing worse now during times of COVID. And the answer was mm-hmm. actually that we actually feel that they're doing much better now. So uh-huh. the interesting part is that perhaps it is because also that now you are expected to be home. You are expected to maybe reduce some workload or you are not expected as much. And it's the same for everyone because nobody can show up for work. So individuals that have maybe have the tendency to um, take too much on them and uh, being online 24-7 now for the first time in a long time maybe felt that, well, no one else is, you know, there's no responsibility of me of me because everyone is expected to be home and people are actually uh, not turning in any kind of you know increased workload so they are actually allowing themselves to you know now I can just be with my family and I don't have to check my email so it was mm-hmm. just uh, just a reflection interesting um, how the the environment around us uh, can also put implicit rules so that mm-hmm. uh, some individuals are maybe more sensitive to that kind of environment where the, there's this kind of uh, uncertainty whether, you know, should I be working or should I do more or should I do less? Should I take a break? Can I take a break? These kind of mm-hmm. thoughts that pop into your mind. And and some individuals maybe are uh, maybe then more sensitive to uh, not being able to handle this kind of uncertainty. So they then instead of they respond by, you know, working more. You know, just to make sure that they're doing everything right. Uh, mm-hmm. And this might also link a little bit to kind of perfectionist qualities, which we, what we see maybe in individual sport athletes, uh, where the performance is so, uh, lies so heavily on you as an individual that you feel that you must take the responsibility. Whereas in, uh, in a more team based setting, you know, it's easier to hide a little bit. You know, you can kind of, well, I mean, the coach's eyes are not on me you know, all the time. Uh, and mm-hmm. this is also maybe in academia where the student feels that everyone's eyes are on them. Uh, yeah. Again, a reflection on this. Yeah. I, I, I think it's quite likely that the COVID pandemic has actually had like 
diverse effects and consequences for individuals, just like we talked. So for some kind of this work, work life balance has been more difficult to maintain, but maybe for some others, you might have more time because you're not commuting to work. And then you feel that you start early and maybe you're done with your work and then you can or you don't have the hassles in, in the office and, and mm-hmm. you feel that you're efficient when you're working from home and then you have time off after that. So yeah. as as we know with everything, there is always the individual difference in, in how we respond. Yes. I think the last thing, what is worth discussing from, or the last point in, in this review that we started to use as a backdrop for our talk is this financial insecurity and I would couple that with uncertain career prospects. So I just looked up like one study from from Flanders in Belgium. So they had a chart about the number of faculty positions in 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 that area and and it had increased in the past 20 20 years from a bit over 2000 to around 3000, but at the same time when you only have less than a thousand more faculty positions, the PhD students had gone up from a bit over 5,000 to something around 9,500. So we have a massive amount of PhD students now compared to what it used to be, but at the same time, there isn't nowhere near similar increase in the jobs available. So -hmm. that makes the situation that there is definitely not enough jobs for PhD students. But at the same time, there seems to be that PhD students and early career academics, postdocs, are still primarily trained for academic careers. And a lot of them would say that they want an academic career. So I think this is a big paradox. And so a big number of people will feel that they failed or Mm -hmm. kind of they are forced to leave because there aren't jobs and they might not be prepared for that option either. Yeah. I mean, the question we can also set is, what is the, why why is this change taking place? You might have an answer to that. I don't. Uh, is it because of uh, is it because of universities are trying to gather more money uh, by taking more students or? Yeah, and I don't really know the background <laughs> in terms of the policies mm-hmm. and and why that has gone that way, but I think I can just say from my observations in terms of what kind of professional development has been offered during my PhD mm-hmm. studies and, and the postdocs that I've done, like almost everything is always targeting an academic career. So how to get your next grant, how to prepare a better application, how to whatever, do a conference presentation or something like that. But I think there is very little kind of available in terms of like, preparing for careers other than an academic career. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just thinking that we are a little bit like the football academy where you have all these young boys and girls and everybody is kind of told that you just work hard and then you can make it. Whereas in reality, we know that most of them will never become professional footballers. So just kind of reflecting on that situation, I, Mm -hmm. I think we are not also receiving this kind of adequate support for exploring alternative careers outside of academia and kind of finding out about these other things that are out there. Yeah. Well, it's, I guess it's also, you know, it's, it's because of the, well, I guess it, it could also influence 
that now when there's more positions opening up for PhD students, that well, we all know that after university, after undergraduate studies, we often still don't know, you know, what do I want from life? What, what, what do I want to do? I mean, if studies are going well and there's an opportunity to do PhD study, which is uh, a quite long process, perhaps many individuals enter these PhD programs um, not because it's a life calling, but because it's there, because it's available. So perhaps mm-hmm. the system is now created in a way that we are, and now I'm just throwing out, out ideas. Maybe it's now creating a, a situation where there are a lot of students starting their PhD and even finalizing them without really having a passion for academia, uh, without really even knowing what their plans are. So when they're mm-hmm. done and thrown out of the system, you know, you have a PhD, but what do you want to do? So I think, like yeah. I mentioned a little bit earlier, also the responsibility of the individual is there, but also I think it's the responsibility of the culture to you know, really make sure that we are actually taking in individuals that are really looking forward to working in academia and have the uh, chances to do so. Um, but mm-hmm. obviously, if, if the sit- sit- system is in, in, put up the way that, that, as you mentioned now, that there's no chance that everyone's going to get a job. So, you know, mm. not sure. or the big majority is not going to get a job. So mm. I, I think that's a big structural problem. And, and then this kind of, I would say that a lot of the career development kind of support that I've received has been very individualistic as well. Kind of you have to work hard and you have to build your CV and you mm-hmm. have to build your network and all that. And so on the structural level, there is like, that's a massive problem because no matter how hard you work there, everybody else is working hard. And, and this competition in the academia is something that is making mm-hmm. a lot of people sick Yeah, because Everybody is going for this <laughs> race for the positions. It means mm-hmm. that everybody is overworking and then becoming more vulnerable to burnout and, and all the other issues mm-hmm. that come with it. Just a reflection on that. I will soon ask about what can be done based on, based on your experience and, and, and your work as well. But, uh, I think one of the things that I wanted to mention as well is this demand for mobility that is now kind of very normative for academic careers. Mm -hmm. So if you want to be in the academia and, and it's difficult to get jobs, it's very much expected that you have to be moving around. I can just say from my own, own experience. So I've done the PhD in Denmark, one postdoc in China, another postdoc in the UK. And then now working in Finland again on a two-year uh, contract. So this mobility is, is really something that is demanded. And most of the funding instruments, if you want to get the postdoc funding or something like that, also require that you have to be, even if you stay in your home country, you have to spend six months abroad or something like that. Mm-hmm. So so basically moving around is um, it's really a necessity. and And that's not something that everybody can do. So for example, there's a gender, big gender issue over there, because if you look at often, it's much more easier for men 
to be moving and they might do that while while the family is staying at the home country for example but then if you look at the situation from the other way around so many women their families are not as willing to move or they cannot leave their young children in a different country and all these things so kind of that mobility requirement that has been now taken up by some some scholars as a big inequality issue that that mm-hmm. has come come front with that yeah well i mean we are <clears throat> i can understand this and and obviously the this gender issues are very you know on the surface today you know it's 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 discussed a lot i my personal experience has been that we have a very equal relationship me and my wife we both uh, travel a lot i stay you know at least for the last five six years i've stayed at home every month for one week by myself with the kids when the wife goes uh, on her work trips so it and it's been working well i mean but obviously that has been a different kind of mobility i mean we have a a center we have our home from which we then travel to our works and come back return to our home so it's it's maybe not the same as having to uh, move to another country and, and and bring your you know family with you but definitely being able to or not being able to travel has its limitations i mean i can see that uh, me and my wife we've moved i think five six times now in the past seven years uh, and traveled in different locations and i mean obviously it, it's worked really well for us but you know i i can understand why that might be a problem for uh, others and and especially i mean this has been our own choice so that's i think a big thing as well if it's your own choice it's different but when when the market kind of demands you to move to other places in order to just get some kind of job then obviously mm-hmm. it's differently completely different thing and and, and yeah. as, like if you like as you mentioned that's becoming the norm that people are expected to do this uh, then obviously that causes significant you know uh, stress for the people involved mm. yeah that definitely makes the job more stressful and i think when we are talking about free choice there is always <laughs> a degree to which we can say it's a free choice but kind of what are the options that you have in your home country and and if you if there are no options in your home country to continue your career is it then your choice to move or are you kind of yeah i wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's your choice then in that, in that situation i would not say it's your choice what i was merely saying was that we have you know we we me and my wife we personally decided that you know we want to do this you know and, mm-hmm. and you know hey see this is a nice opportunity let's do this and mm-hmm. uh, but so we've sought after those you know we've approached those you know yeah. imbalances uh-huh. in our lives just because we we have had the interest to do that and we've seen that as an investment for the future but like you said yeah. when the, when the environment you know you don't you know it is your choice to stay in the academia academy or the academia but it's mm-hmm. not your choice to move to another country because there's no work in wherever you live so then obviously it is not so called free choice uh, like yeah. you mm-hmm. and i think at my own part as well like 
I always enjoyed going to different places and, and I actively ch- uh, looked for those opportunities mm-hmm. as well. But at the same time, I, I can say that there were very little options available in my home country at the same time. So even if I was looking forward to and I was looking for op- opportunities abroad, mm-hmm. if I wasn't, then I think I would have been... <laughs> Yeah. forced to move if I wanted to stay in the academia. Yeah, th- I was just uh, linking this to, you know, sport, because we've been talking about uh, you know, sports and everything. And this is something we can maybe, you know, reflect over to, you know, the the career of a coach. Uh, when I was coaching ice hockey, and, and uh, I mean, I never had a contract longer than uh, two years. Uh, so it was always... Uh, you know, what, what, after one year, you start thinking, you know, do you want to stay here or do I uh, want to look for another place to go? And it's not always, you know, as easy because it's, it's, um, I think it's a little bit like in the academia, you know, it's not like you just, hey, I want to be here. And then there's a job to apply. You know, it, it might be that there's no university in that area or, or they don't have the program that you are uh, specified in uh, or have your expertise in. So you, you know, especially, you know, if you are working, your PhD is focused on a very specific area. Where do I find, you know, that kind of place where I can actually, you know, use my expertise? So I think many people have to take the, you know, middle way and just find something to start with. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's then kind of start talking about more more practical matters. So we already identified several structural and cultural issues like this normalization of working whenever (laughs) and kind of the normalization that you have to work hard and you probably need to make some sacrifices if you want to stay in the academia. Well, we didn't didn't talk about that too much, but we talked about the mobility that if you want to stay in the academia, that's what you most likely have to do, whether you want it or not. So there are these structural and, and cultural expectations, but it but if we go to talk about the individual level, so if you have identified that academia is what you want to do and, and we are in this context, which mm-hmm. is not very healthy, what what would be some of the things that you might do or at least think about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always very difficult if the environment around you is toxic. I mean, it's very difficult to, uh, you know, just pathologize the individual and say, hey, you, you know, and we're doing the same thing, you know, as, as whether it's psychologist or whoever is discussing this, you know, saying, you know, hey, you have to, you know, why don't you plan better and you have to do this and that and this. But if the environment is toxic, I think the first step is to do is to identify, you know, who are you and what do you want? What are your core values? And, you know, it might even be that, you know, hey, this, this shit ain't for me, you know, it's, you know, it's uh, <clears throat> that this environment is not where I want to be. You know, it's that's maybe where to start, you know. And if, if you see that there's value in, in and this is meaningful to you uh, to pursue this work, then obviously you have to, you know, maybe identify w- w- what is, like I said, who are you? What are your strengths and weaknesses? What are your trigger points in terms of stress and, 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 and where, where do you thrive? What kind of issues, you know, help you to thrive? Uh, and what are those risk factors? And I think that's always a good thing to, to kind of look into that and, and, and see, 
see uh, of your strengths and weaknesses, how they then might function in the environment that you are in. Mm. So I don't know. That's that's a that's at least where to start. Yeah. And obviously, you hear always people saying, you know, you have to structure your day and you have to uh, do this and that. I think uh, it's all good and valid, but then again, you know, <clears throat> there's always an exception to the rule, and many times those rules are broken when you are in that environment and i think an important quality to have is being flexible like flexibility uh, within the the frame of your own uh, values so being flexible to the changes of the environment i think that those people often thrive well and no matter what the uh, environment uh, is yeah and i really like when you started first talking about that keeping all the options open in terms of like what are my values? And just like you said, that maybe this shit is not for me. Yeah. And that's that's also a valuable outcome. Yeah. Figuring out that I'm I'm not up to it or I, I don't accept this mm-hmm. kind of working environment and I'm going to pursue something else. And I think that's also, you know, uh, you know, that that what you mentioned is also uh, comes down to being a little nice to yourself. Because many mm-hmm. times, you know, there's, you know, the environment, especially if it's a not good environment, it's beating us, you know, often. Uh, then it doesn't get better if you self-beat yourself as well. So, I mean, you know, identify your values. What do you want to do? Um, what's important to you, your family? And uh, be nice to yourself, I guess, at least try. Yeah. Uh, those are pretty good ways to start. I Yeah, I wanted to share, I was listening to this other podcast, which was, I think it was produced by the career services at the Oxford University. And and um, they just had different people discussing their experiences. And, and one of the speakers was just saying that then she got a university job, like a lecturing job. And then she said that I hated having a job. And, and that was, then she had it for a couple of years and then she quit and now she's again working freelance and saying that she absolutely loves it that way. So yeah. <laughs> kind of just, I I thought that was the really nice way of destabilizing the narrative that, you know, yeah. the only way to succeed is to secure a permanent position and, and get to the yeah. professorship and all that. And, and that, that is, you know, the, you know, it must have been difficult because we are almost brainwashed into, in, not only in academia, but in just work, you know, in, in life in general, in, in our society, that, you know, you have to do this and that, you know, there's this kind of um, the, the, the right way of doing things, you know, you get it from your parents, you get it from your grandparents, you get it from your teachers, your coaches, whatever, everyone around you. But I think that having the courage to sit down and, you know, identify your own values and what's meaningful to you i think that's the best ingredient for success mm-hmm. and success obviously can be whatever you see success is and not and not mm-hmm. by some standards of you know world around you mm-hmm. yeah there are also those kind of podcasts about how to overcome this sense of academic failure so there is this kind of stigma that for example leaving academia is is a failure like you you couldn't do that you couldn't take it like other people can take it they can mm-hmm. <laughs> they can do it and you were the one who couldn't do that so i i think this kind of very those are the harmful narratives that are 
mm-hmm. harming people, harming young young scholars, PhD students. Yeah. Kind of normalizing that there is one way to success and, and all the other ways are towards failure. So mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what you already said. Mm-hmm. So yeah. How about so we talk about this individual level? What what do you think more collectively? What can we do? What can we try to do? Well, I think that, I mean, now I'm just throwing out ideas and, and just kind of when, when we think about, okay, so if, if this is a lot of based on individual performance and we're always kind of talking in terms of, you know, what the individual can do. First of all, I think that very helpful thing, at least from my experience, and, and we've worked together, Nora, in, in several projects. I think that involving, you know, small group research groups that, or the, the PhD students or the early academic career person, involving them into, uh, you know, collaborative work uh, is a really good way of um, supporting the individual. Not in, in the way that this kind of traditional way of like, hey, you can meet a counselor, you know, at two o'clock on Thursday to talk about your issues. Uh, rather just inviting the person into collaborating on some project together and, and, and taking kind of the weight of the shoulders of that one individual and sharing it with, you know, other colleagues. I think that's a very good good way of, uh, I think, at least from my perspective, to build a, inviting the individual to a community. Uh, and, and obviously then there's a lot of changes that should probably take place on the more broader level, but I don't really know what that would be. I think there's many things that comes from the, you know, the economic and performance kind of demands that are placed on universities. Uh, I think everything kind of starts from there, and I'm not really sure how that's how you can change that. Yeah, but I think the first first kind of step towards the change is at least acknowledging that we have a problem and we have a massive problem in here. Mm-hmm. And people are not well in in the university environments, in the research environments. So if we have one third of PhD students or half of the PhD students who are struggling or or kind of at risk, at least, mm-hmm. then it it also means that even with these performance targets, if your if your employees are not well, they also can't do their work, and we we know all that. So if if anything, at at least like I hate it when everything comes down to performance and money. But I but I guess that you know when when these environments are also seeing that their performance is also going down because mm-hmm. of of these yep. issues. Then, but at least at the moment, I think there is increasing awareness that we have a problem. And, and the, I think the main issue, what, what you mentioned there, is about you know this, like we are dealing with a population that is still quite young and uh, very vulnerable to in overall uh, pop- vulnerable population to developing uh, mental health issues. Um, you know, the ages between twenty and thirty. And if we if we begin let them begin their careers under stress and 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 I mean obviously stresses can be okay but you know obviously there's good stress and then there's the bad stress but uh, if the environment is 
already burning out these individuals before they even start their careers, you know, obviously they are losing money in the long term. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think that the same problem that exists in sports is that that performance has to be today. You have to perform on the top today. You have to have the results today rather than building long-lasting performance setting over several years where you have individuals that are healthy, motivated, and have a good work-life balance. You know, we don't get that without actually, you know, guiding those individuals doing their early careers uh, in the proper way. Yeah, I I think what we've discussed a lot about different things. There's quite a lot to chew on <laughs> already yeah. in here. Yeah. So yeah, thank you so much, Richard, for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank and, you. Uh, It's a pleasure. How is your PhD coming along? It's very close to being finished, isn't it? Yeah, it's supposed to be finished very soon, but it's uh, it's taking a little bit longer uh, than expected. But mm-hmm. I guess it's going on. I mean, it's uh, I'm here at the summer cabin by myself uh, writing. So, yeah, it's going. Uh, it should be finished somewhere this decade. So, <laughs> <laughs> no stress. <laughs> no, 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 no stress. It's it's all uh, it's all under control. Uh, it's just um, it's just uh, you know obviously the COVID has had its impact on uh, this process and uh, you know moving between countries so i've take uh, the lessons from my own speech and you know be kind to myself and, and you know understand the situation and just go with it as well as i can that that sounds wonderful and and best of luck finishing it so again yeah thanks for talking with me today yeah thank you too thanks for joining us this week on physical activity research through podcast If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be great help for us we have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes so be sure to tune in thank you all for your support and have a great day